Let's hear God's word from Psalm 143, the Psalm of David, beginning with verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Selah. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies, and you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Psalm 143. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that... Coming to this portion of your word, we would do so with attentive minds, with open hearts. We pray that you would enable us to receive in faith. And we pray that you would enable us truly to make this inspired prayer our own. And, oh, Lord, we don't only ask that we would pray this way, but we ask that you would answer our prayers and that we would more and more live this way also. In Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's message is, Why Should God Teach Us? And that's based, of course, on verse 10, where you have the petition, teach me to do your will, and there's a reason given for you are my God. And so the heart of the message is really trying to explore how is you are my God a reason for God to teach us. But before we get to the heart, we need to make sure we understand what's happening, what's going on. And so first of all, we have the content of this prayer. What does it mean when we ask God, teach me to do your will? Well, there are some other phrases in this same psalm that help to flesh that out. A little bit. For instance, when he says just immediately following that, lead me in the land of uprightness, that's not a completely different thought. Or when he says in verse 8, cause me to know the way in which I should walk, well, there the image is of a path with a destination, and this is the right path to get to your destination. Well, what is the destination? It's doing the will of God. It's pleasing God with our lives. Or you could say the destination is the land of uprightness, and God is showing us how to get there. 
So this idea of walking, this idea of doing, this idea of being guided or led in the land of uprightness, those are all similar. They're expanding this idea of what it means to do the Lord's will. Now, this is actually a very common thought in the Psalms. This comes up a lot. Let me give you a few instances of this. You don't have to turn. You're welcome to turn if, you won't, if it won't distract you from listening, but you don't have to turn. Psalm 5, verse 8 is one of these. Here again, you have David praying, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Here again, you have this idea of a path and of guidance of being shown where the path lies. Or if we jump forward a few psalms to Psalm 25, again, we have a similar thought. Verse 4 of Psalm 25, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. And here you have expanded this idea of truth. What are God's ways? What is the path of God? Well, that is a path of truth. Or then again, just a page over, Psalm 27, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Well, you have the same request to be guided, to be taught by God. Now he's clarifying that that is a smooth path. There are enemies who would trip us up. There are enemies who would take us off of God's path. But the true path is the smooth path of God's way. Now, in saying that, I don't believe that David is saying this is a trouble-free path. This is a path with no bumps or hiccups along the way. I think he's saying that this is the good path. And yes, he does want God to enable him to walk along it as though it were smooth, as though there were no problems. But I think it's more a reflection on the quality of the path. It is the level way. It is the straight way. It is the right way. The reason we find difficulties walking it is not because the way itself is complicated or winding or in disrepair. The reason we have trouble walking it is because of ourselves, our insides, our baggage, our spiritual lameness and slowness. Or then again, just to give you one more example, Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verse 3, you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. So there again is this petition to be led and guided. There's the recognition that there are enemies, but there's also a reason given. God is his strength, or he mentions, for your name's sake. Now we have all of those elements in Psalm 143 as well. He starts off by complaining about his enemies, doesn't he? Well, I shouldn't say he starts off, but in verses 3, And four, he talks about how his enemies have afflicted him. And then at the end of the psalm in verse 12, he asks for his enemies to be cut off and destroyed. So you have that ingredient of the the enemies. You have the ingredient of being asked to be taught God's way, to be led in his paths, to be guided in the land of uprightness. You have that element of for God's name's sake. You have a reason given for God 
to do this. So all of that just to say that this reality, this request, ought to be something that is frequent in our hearts because it was something that was frequent in the Psalms. In other words, we're not going to pray this once and be done. I'm not going to ask God tomorrow, oh, Lord, show me your way. Okay, I'm done. I've learned God's way. I don't need to make this request again. It comes up again and again in the Psalms. It comes up again and again by David. Why do you think that is? Well, as we read in James, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which gives to all men liberally, without reproaching or not upbraiding. The idea behind James telling you that God gives generously or liberally without reproaching or upbraiding. Sorry, I tried to meld those two words together. The reason James tells you that is so that you'll be encouraged to ask and to ask again and to ask as many times as you have need and to ask for wisdom to see how much more you have need of that than you even thought. So this is going to be a continual request. If we desire to do the will of God, if we desire to walk in God's ways, we're not going to pray this once and be done. We're going to pray and pray and pray again for the Lord to lead us in his ways. Every time there's a new situation, every time we slip, every time we veer off to the right hand or to the left, we're going to be asking God once again to teach us to do his will, to teach us to walk in his way. Now, before we get to why should God teach us to do this, let's make sure we've embraced this petition. Why should we ask God to do this for us? That maybe comes first. We've seen something of what the petition means. We've seen that it's frequent in the Psalms. Why do we ask God to bless us in this way? Well, the very first answer is that to do God's will is already a blessing. It is already good for us. We want our own way by nature, but our own way is not good. The one who trusts in his own heart is a fool, says the book of Proverbs. Give me what I want is a fool's prayer. We offer up our desires to God. I understand that. We tell God what it is that we're needing what it is that we feel we need. We do offer up our desires, but we offer up our desires in part so that he will sanctify them, so that he will change the ones that need to change. That's why we pray about them, not to get what we want, but so that our desires will be purified and then we'll receive a gracious, a glorious answer to our purified desires. So why do we ask God to teach us to do his will? And notice that. It's not just teach us what your will is. Well, that's very nice. That's important. We need to know what God's will is. But we need to be taught to do God's will, to practice it, to implement it. Yeah, that's God's will. I know that. Okay. That's not all that we're asking for. We're asking to know and to obey. We're asking to follow God's will. When he leads us, not say, oh, that's the path God's wanting me to go. Guess what? I'm going to go over here instead. We're asking to be brought along the right way. Well, why do we ask that? We ask that because God's will is upright. It is good. To do God's will is a blessing. We sometimes talk about doing what's right because it's right. And that's true as far as it goes. But we ought to want to do what's right 
Because that's what God wants. Because that is godly. It is like God. It's not just some abstract idea of right and wrong. It is the will of God. And obedience is not the way to blessing. We don't obey in order to secure God's favor. Obedience is the blessing. When God pours out his spirit upon us, when God writes his law in our hearts, what happens? We obey. We want to obey. We recognize it as our good. We recognize it as our aim. We recognize it as being itself God's blessing upon us. Now, there are some things that need to happen before we can really pray this way and before this request can be fulfilled. Now, there'd be different ways to approach this, but just in terms of what else this psalm says, you can notice verse 7. He says, do not hide your face from me. Now, that language in the Bible, when it speaks about God's face, it means about God's presence, God's attention, but specifically God's favorable presence and attention, like in the ironic benediction, the Lord make his face shine upon you. It's, so to speak, God has such a big smile on his face. He's beaming at you, communicating grace, communicating favor. So what do we need in order to pray this prayer? What do we need for this prayer to be answered? Well, we need God's favor. We need his countenance shining upon us. We need his loving kindness, as it says in verse 8. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. We need God's deliverance. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies, it says in verse 9. We need his reviving work, as he has it in verse 11. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. In my view, those are all different ways, different words that are basically speaking about the same thing. All of this is talking about God's grace. Who will sincerely pray, teach me to do your will? Those who have received God's grace. And why will God answer those who pray this way? Because when he started to be gracious, he doesn't pull back. He doesn't stop. He continues to be gracious. And so this obedience, learning to do the will of God, That is a blessing. That is a gift of God's grace. Philippians 2.13, you know this verse. It is God who works in you both to will and to do by his good pleasure. Who gives you the ability? Who gives you the desire to obey? It is the Lord. In other words, a salvation that did not include being taught to do God's will would be a salvation not worth having. If all God did was to say, okay, I won't punish you for your sins, but go on committing them, that's already the worst punishment for sin. That's not a salvation worth having. Real salvation, really receiving the grace of God, means we are taught to do God's will. Now, that's not the only thing it means. But it has to include that. If it doesn't include that, we're not really talking about the grace of God that brings salvation because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching them that they should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, godly, and righteously in this present evil generation. 
Now, when we make this prayer, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. It might remind us of yet another verse in the Psalms. It might remind us of Psalm 40, verse 8, where Christ, before his incarnation, God the Son, coming into the world, pronounces these words, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Why should we pray this way? Because this is the way of Christ-likeness. This is what it means to be changed into his image from glory to glory. That as he delighted to do the will of God, we learn to delight to do the will of God. That God's law is written in our hearts as it was in Christ. You desire to be more like Jesus. You desire to have more in common with him than you do now. Here's the prayer. Here's the way that happens. You are taught to do the will of God. All right. Well, now hopefully we understand the content of the prayer. That can then bring us to the basis of the request. We know what the basis is. It's spelled out for us in verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. But what we want to understand is how do those two things connect? Why is God being David's God a reason for God to teach David how to do his will? Well, when he says, you are my God, what that is enunciating, what that's spelling out just very shortly here is that there is a mutual covenant relationship between them. God belongs to David. How can anybody say that? How can anybody claim that God, the creator, the almighty belongs to you, to me, to us? Well, because God has been pleased to create that relationship. God has been pleased to enter into a covenant with us whereby he belongs to us, where he is truly our God. Can you imagine the arrogance, the staggering pride of somebody who would say, oh, yes, I have decided that God will be mine when God had not decided that? Well, it comes up in Matthew chapter seven. People say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. We don't get to initiate that relationship. We don't get to decide that. God decides that. God starts the covenant. But then just like in a marriage covenant, two people make themselves over to one another. They say, I'm not mine. I belong to you. Well, so in the covenant relationship between God and his people, God makes himself over to us. He says, you can call upon me. You can think of me as your God. You can rely on me to belong to you, to be yours. That's an amazing grace. That's a staggering blessing. That is way more than we could ever deserve. But that is the God of grace whom we serve. Now, this is a mutual covenant relationship. It's not It's started by God's initiative. Don't get me wrong about that. But it is mutual. It is a two-way street. God relates to us, but we also relate to God. Well, what is that relationship like? David is appealing to this whole relationship as a reason for God to continue to teach him how to do God's will. What's involved on David's side? Well, obviously there's prayer involved. The whole psalm is a prayer. But how does it start? Hear my prayer. 
O Lord, verse 1. Or then in verse 6, I spread out my hands to you. He's reflecting the posture of prayer where people would often raise their hands in praying to God. So when he says, I stretch out my hands, he's, that's another way, a figurative way of saying, I pray. It's like when Paul says, I bow the knee. Well, that's another way of saying that he prayed because people would often kneel to pray. Or then again in verse 7 when he says, answer me speedily. Well, the presupposition is he's talking to God. He's directing his prayers to God. So what does a covenant relationship with God look like? Well, on our part, it looks like prayer. Without prayer, there is no possibility of pleasing God. Without prayer, there is no possibility of actually being a Christian. If you're in a mutual covenant relationship with God, you are going to pray. That's just the bottom line. There's no way around it. No prayer means there's no relationship there. But there's more than that. Notice what he says in verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. There'd be different words you could use to describe this, but I just opted for the word remembrance. He keeps God in mind. He thinks about God. Psalm 10 says about the wicked man that God is not in all his thoughts. He's thinking all day long, but God never makes an appearance. Well, that's the opposite of the godly person. We think about God all the time. It's not that we think only about God because there are other things to attend to, but we try to approach everything from a standpoint of remembering God and we return again and again, to remember, to meditate, to muse, to think, to consider, to praise. Now we get to what, in a sense, you could consider the heart of this relationship, and that is the question of trust. Verse 8 says it very specifically, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. But verse 9 says it another way, in you I take shelter. And then, verse 10, of course, you are my God, your spirit is good. All of that is reflecting an attitude of trust. And, of course, you can see how those things go together. You're not going to trust God. You're not going to pray to God if you don't trust him. Why would you ask somebody you had no confidence in to give you the blessings that are right for you? Why would you want to know the will of somebody you're deeply suspicious of? You don't want to take advice from them. So trust is an essential part of this covenant relationship. And then, of course, we should not neglect that this trust comes out in the form of obedience. Verse 8, again, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. And, of course, our very petition in verse 10, teach me not just to know, but teach me to do your will. So in this mutual covenant relationship that God has established between us and him, we have these elements. We have prayer, we have remembrance, we have trust, and we have obedience. What about on God's side? Well, on God's side, you can speak about faithfulness and righteousness. Notice verse one, in your faithfulness, answer me and in your righteousness, because God is always in the right, because God always keeps his promises, because God has committed himself to us, we appeal 
not just to his mercy or grace. We appeal to his very righteousness. We appeal to the inflexibility of his character, whereby he will do no wrong. And we say, you promised. Can it be that God will promise and not perform? Oh, no, that would be like an unrighteous man. And God is not unrighteous. And so the very holiness, the very uprightness, the very justice of God becomes a comfort to us when we're in a covenant relationship with him. Because if he has promised, he will perform. Now he has staked his name, his reputation on the line that he will be to us everything that a God is to his people. You can count on God's faithfulness. You can count on God's righteousness. But of course, we do also appeal to his mercy. David acknowledges that in God's sight, no one living will be justified. We all have sins for which we could very easily be condemned. And so we also appeal to God's mercy. Now, in verse 8, we have the word loving kindness. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. And in verse 12, we have, in your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. But that's the same word in Hebrew. Those are two different ways of translating the same word. That's God's disposition to alleviate our miseries. That's God's disposition to be gracious to us in spite of our guilt. That's God's decision to love us, even though we're not particularly lovable. And that turns into salvation. That turns into deliverance for us from trial and temptation. That turns even into God's destroying our enemies who would do us harm because God will preserve us even if it comes at the cost of destroying others. But I think one good word to summarize this is God's loyalty. You notice what it says at the end of verse 12, the end of the psalm, I am your servant. And of course, David has already said that God is his God. Those two things correlate. They go together, right? If God is my God, then I am God's servant. But if I am God's servant, then God is invested in providing for me, in taking care of me, in defending me. And that's why David can pray in God's name. Revive me, O Lord, as he says in verse 11, for your name's sake, for your righteousness sake, Bring my soul out of trouble. When God entered into a mutual covenant relationship with us, he put his own reputation on the line. And that's why you have that phrase, for the sake of his name, again and again throughout the Bible. It's another way of saying, for his own glory, for the glory of God. Why can we pray this way to God? Why should God teach us to do his will? Because he's entered into a mutual covenant relationship with us because he's claimed us as his servants. And so now God is invested in us obeying him because we're called by his name, because we belong to his household, because he has committed to be to us all that he should be. God should teach us to do his will because of his zeal for his own glory. Well, that brings you to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? Because why did God enter into this covenant relationship with us? Why did God limit his choices in regard to his people by making these promises and commitments? Well, you know the answer. You've said it many times, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. This all arises 
from the gracious, the sovereignly loving heart of our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Amen.